This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Well, first of all, how are you? Can you dig it? I'm kind of rushing this morning, so uh, my my family is in town this weekend. Happy Labor Day weekend, first of all. Actually, not first of all, because I've said a bunch of things, but happy Labor Day weekend, everybody. I hope you're all having a relaxing weekend, enjoying the long weekend, hopefully, from your work. If you are working, we appreciate you. This is a day for people, in my opinion, to celebrate, you know, work because work is labor and labor is work and those type of things. And I think the people that work hard deserve to take a day off. That's why we kind of have Labor Day. So happy Labor Day, everybody. It's a great day. Um, cookouts, all that other shit, hanging out with your family. My family, uh, with the exception of my brother who is still in welding school and needs to finish up out there before he can go on his merry way. My family, my parents, my sister have all flown down to Austin, Texas, which has been very, very nice. And they are kind of just staying here, getting a weekend away. And uh, they have effectively uh, dropped a tornado on my apartment. So it's very, it's just as shit's all over the place. I got batches popping up everywhere, but it's all good. So, and I'm finally getting uh, time to record this podcast because they've been all wanting to do stuff and everything, which is great. But, you know, I wanted to, I needed to get this done. So I'm, you know, they're downstairs working out. My mom's in the pool, everything else. So wanted to get this out and I've been editing this all morning just because I, I've been feeling what this topic is about for a very, very long time. And I've been feeling like it's been, you know, a topic that's been weighing on me for quite a long time. A certain person with, obviously, like a lot of you guys, most of all of you guys, potentially all of you guys, in my opinion, having political opinions in varying sorts of ways. I'm not here to tout mine. I I don't know if you guys can tell what my political leanings are. I'm sure you probably can if you really look at my stuff. But, um, you know, I try to keep it as neutral as possible because I don't think politics really play into what my, you know, what my blog is about, I would say, but it's just, you know, this has been kind of really been weighing on me, particularly in the last, I would say six months. I don't even know if six months is the right, the right, you know, time frame to put this in, because I feel like it's been, it's always been kind of there, but I think like it should, it might've just been exacerbated from the last couple of months. So this is something I've been kind of feeling for, for a long time. And I think now I just wanted to kind of really sort myself out and see kind of where or if it really held any water, kind of everything that I was thinking or everything that everyone else was saying was actually what I was thinking. And I was actually kind of shocked that I think I was not necessarily more right than I thought I was because I don't think, I don't even know if I'm right at all on this stuff. I could be totally wrong. But it kind of was, you know, when I was looking it up, it actually was as crazy as I thought it was. So for this post, we're just going to get right into it. 
Um, it's got a lot of references and a lot of sources because whenever I write a political thing or make a political reference, I feel like I always have to have a lot of references with it because, you know, I don't want anyone to jump up down my throat and call me like a name or whatever. I mean, I really don't care. I mean, I don't even know if anybody listens to this shit anyway. But anyway, here we go. So on August 3rd of this year, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio made a major announcement. During a press conference, he announced that he would making vaccinations against COVID-19 mandatory for both customers and employees of indoor entertainment centers, gyms, and restaurants. The order was set to start on August 16th and be fully mandated by September 13th, so about a week from today. He dubbed the program the, quote, key to NYC pass. As directly quoted from de Blasio, quote, when you hear those words, I want you to imagine the notion that, because someone's vaccinated, they can do all the amazing things that are available to do in this city, end quote. There is hardly a topic that is as big of a landmine in America today as vaccinations. It's a highly controversial subject, to say the least. This statement from Bill de Blasio was perhaps the biggest landmine triggered throughout the entire campaign of the post-pandemic era in the United States. It was much different than anything we'd heard from the Biden administration. They were encouraging vaccinations, but not mandating them. de Blasio had taken it one step further. He had used his power as the mayor of the most influential city in America to institute public domain over individual sovereignty. It was a bold move, to say the least. I haven't gotten my COVID shot yet, but I'm fully vaccinated against everything else. I have a sister with autism, and I despise anti-vaxxers who claim this nonsensical garbage about how vaccines cause autism. But those are against measles, mumps, and smallpox, not COVID-19. The data on COVID in terms of mortality rate is not in the same league as those diseases, and frankly, it's not even close, which have killed tens of millions of people, probably more, over the course of our history, and have much higher mortality rates over time. For all we know, this could be just a glorified flu shot. We might have to get it once a year. I think there's a strong chance that given a lot of people are going to need boosters sooner rather than later, but the fact remains that it's simply too early to tell. This, naturally, triggered a ton of noise from both sides of the political aisle, Conservatives despise Bill de Blasio, so it was rightly assumed that they would go after him immediately. But it was not nearly in the way that I had expected. The way that some conservatives went after Bill de Blasio was the most mind-blowing thing I've seen in modern politics in, in some time. They didn't call his policy unconstitutional, even though it is. They didn't defend individual rights, which his mandate deliberately foregoes. They didn't even say the obvious that withholding things from people unless they make them inject a substance into their body that they may not want in their body for whatever reason is an absolutely inappropriate and invasive practice, which it obviously is. Instead, they called him a racist. Wait, isn't that the other way around? Well, listener, that's what I thought too. But that didn't stop both Clay Travis from OutKick and Sean Hannity from Fox News to lambaste de Blasio on his vaccine policy. They both claimed that he and his policy were racist. I was completely floored when I had heard this. After doing some research, i.e. watching a Ben Shapiro video on YouTube, I found out they had not gone rogue to their hypocrisy. Oh no. First, they needed an example. A strong example. And a strong example showed up indeed. Kim Janey is the current interim mayor of Boston, Massachusetts, my old stomping ground for a year. She carries the title of, quote, interim mayor because her successor or her predecessor, Marty Walsh, accepted an, an invitation from President Biden upon his inauguration to become a Secretary of Labor. She plans to run for election for, to full-time mayor once her and Walsh's combined terms are, are up. It might not be New York, but Boston is a pretty big deal as a city. It's only a part of the size of terms of population, 
of New York or Philadelphia or any of the other cities up there. But it's very densely populated and it's the second largest city in the Northeast, only to the aforementioned New York. They have similar COVID policy, culture, and demographics. In essence, Kim Janey has basically Bill de Blasio's counterpart. Her opinion, whether you like it or not, matters. Right after de Blasio announced the mandate, Kim Janey was asked by a local reporter about her opinion on her, his ruling. Kim Janey wasted no time in giving her thoughts, because she absolutely shredded Bill de Blasio. She called it the same thing that Hannity and Travis would later call it. Racist. She broke that horrible seal. But Kim Janey didn't stop there. Janey compared it to both Jim Crow and slavery. She said that any ruling was that was imposed by the government that adversely affected a minority population was automatically labeled, quote, oppressive. At the surface, you might find what Janey said to be completely out of left field. So let's dive deeper. There is a narrative being pushed right now in society that everyone who is not getting vaccinated is one of those crazy Fox News watching Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis, Christy Noem supporting lunatic super spreaders. This population is mostly white and Republican. They're being bad and refusing to obey. But this narrative, at least in the context of New York City, is wrong. On August 3rd in New York City, the highest demographic grouping of unvaccinated people were black people at around 70%, as cited earlier by the study pulled by both Ben Shapiro and, the C and CNBC. It wasn't even close when you look at it in comparison with other identity groups sorted by race. Kim Janey, who is black, knew this. But Kim Janey is also something else. Kim Janey is a proponent of a new virus sweeping America, not the coronavirus, called equity. Equity is different from equality. It's important to know that difference, both for this post and for the overall welfare of yourself and our country. Equality is simply everyone having the same opportunity as everyone else. Equity is getting the same equality of outcome as everyone else. One is advocating for an equal starting point. One is advocating for an equal ending point. Equity has become wildly popular among leftist America recently, including the vice president and president of the United States, particularly in the aftermath of the racial unrest of 2020. It's not enough for everyone to be equal anymore. That's too unfair. Instead, everyone has to be the same. It gives people free reign to disparage people by skin color or religion or sexual orientation. Stalin used a version of this to kill 60 million of his own citizens and enslave the rest back in the 20th century. Kim Janey applied the principle of equity to Bill de Blasio's ruling on vaccine mandates. She took a perfectly neutral law and twisted it to weaponize it against him. Anything that creates an inequality of outcome must be destroyed. We can argue back and forth about whether the policy is good or not all we want. I personally think it's abhorrent, as I mentioned earlier. But racist? That's just not a correct way in any shape or form. I tend to think about it the better interest of people. I thought that when the Biden administration entered and when the Trump administration left, that people would at least stick true to their word. That they would cling tighter and tighter to their different sets of values and use them to either get ahead or fall behind. But in the most mind-blowing political bait-and-switch I've ever seen, the complete opposite is happening. A strange amount of stance-switching has taken place among our political and ruling classes. I should note that there is nothing wrong with changing stances on something across time given new anecdotes, data, and evidence. However, there is something wrong with changing your stances on a lot of things in short fashion with nearly nothing new or hardly any time being passed. Everything switching all at once has gotten us all fucked up. This trend is very confusing and disheartening for the group of people that these folks are supposed to be serving. 
It's the classic case that takes place in things like parenting and teaching all the time. If the people who are supposed to be in charge say one thing and do another, why would the people who are in their care believe it? If our leadership does not believe in the things that they, can, they say, why should we believe anything that they say? Liberals claim that they are against authoritarianism and discrimination, yet more and more of these same folks are doing the exact opposite. Conservatives claim that they are the embodiment of the Tony Soprano strong silent type, but have recently been victimizing themselves and complaining about people offended by more, people being offended, mostly them, by everything more than ever before. The tides have seemingly flipped. The tides have stayed the same and switched all at once. But not only does this have damaging effects on our preferred political ideology, it also has more disastrous effects that run toward our citizenry at large. The reason that countries have borders is because without borders, we do not have a country. The reason that we put up boundaries in a relationship is not to completely lose ourselves within that relationship. Retaining our individuality and sovereignty needs to be paramount in decisions that form our identities both as sole operators and as a society. When these lines blur, it becomes almost impossible to tell what values a person or thing holds and what they all stand for in the grand scheme of things. If we cannot tell these things apart, we have major problems. We can be easily manipulated. We become easier to lie to. When our world turns upside down, we tend to flip around with it. Everything gets turned on its head, leaving us to become confused and dizzy with this new and distorted reality of, quote, the way things work around here. But if our betters in society are going to do it, we might as well know what their new stances are. So let's do a bit of discovery into their bizarre flip-floppery to find out why. Part 1. Liberals are the new bigots. 18 months ago, hardly anyone had ever heard of Robin D'Angelo or Ibram X. Kendi before. They were nobodies, an obscure diversity consultant and a professor that were known in some circles, but not nearly in the popular culture. But, like any good opportunist of any kind, they got a lucky break and capitalized on it to make themselves known very well, I should say, to the greater public. That break was the killing of George Floyd in May of 2020, which shot them and their industry into the spotlight. No one, particularly in an event that was as heinous as that one, wanted to be considered a racist. D'Angelo and Kendi knew that. The field that these two operate in is dubbed, quote, anti-racism. Borrowing a concept from our friend Nicholas Nassim Taleb, these two influencers take the concept of equity that we talked about earlier and apply it in insidious fashion. The fashion they apply it in is the skin color of their opposition, so-called, quote, non-anti-racists. But it doesn't stop there. It gets worse. In 1963, Martin Luther King gave perhaps the most famous speech other than the Gettysburg Address in the history of our nation, I Have a Dream. In that speech, he declared, quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, end quote. This is a beautiful statement. However, in the most interesting case of diction gymnastics I've ever seen, D'Angelo and Kendi have both inverted and perverted this statement. Instead of caring about the contents of someone's character, these two, quote, consultants now charge absurd amounts of money to corporations, government institutions, and nonprofits to lecture people about how you should care more about someone's skin color than the content of their character. There is a high crime in the United States called extortion. It's popular in the American Mafia. In this practice, members of the mob would use coercion to force someone to give them something of value under threat. In The Godfather Part II, for instance, 
the Corleone family gets Senator Pat Geary drugged while in an illegal brothel and kills the prostitute he's sleeping with. Later, Corleone cap regime Al Neri visits Geary at the brothel and extorts him by making testify in favor of the Corleone family in front of a widely spread crime hearing. While De Robin D'Angelo and Ibram Kendi hopefully don't kill prostitutes and fuck around with the mob, the tactic is the same. They're not, quote, diversity and inclusion consultants. They're extortionists. They're running up to institutions, threatening them with reputational risk by labeling the R-word and charging them outrageous fees that supposedly only they can fix. Only through, quote, equity training can their, quote, anti-racist motivations be achieved. But equity is something else other than equality of outcome. Equity itself is also racist. Enforcing quotas that unfairly disadvantage one group over another based on the simple and shallow characteristic of skin color is blatantly wrong. Making decisions about the merit of one's abilities in favor of a person's pigmentation is about as racist as it gets. This was made perfectly clear in February of this year. Coca-Cola, a soft drink manufacturer who leveraged woke culture to avoid the inconvenient fact that their products are one of the leading contributors to obesity in this nation, paid D'Angelo a lot of money to give a, quote, anti-racism training course for their employees. Thinking that it was a good discussion, D'Angelo also sold it to LinkedIn Learning for distribution, a company that has to remind employees that they are bad people by telling them not to hate Asian people every time they click on the search bar at the top of the browser. In that training and corresponding course, D'Angelo targets the primary adversary of the anti-racist movement, white people. The defining moment of the course, entitled, quote, Confronting Racism, was when D'Angelo bizarrely attempted to convince employees to, quote, be less white. According to D'Angelo, quote, to be less white is to be, colon, less oppressive, less arrogant, less certain, less defensive, less ignorant, more humble, end quote. But D'Angelo didn't stop there. She also turned on her own kind. On June 29th, D'Angelo published a book entitled Nice Racism, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm. With the majority of the mainstream woke movement residing on the left side of the political aisle, D'Angelo realized that she was missing out on a huge market opportunity. So she decided to call her entire audience, most of whom are white progressives, awful racists too. It received, quote, mixed reviews, according to Wikipedia, whatever the fuck that means. The, the political right wasn't spared either. When Justice Amy Coney Barrett was getting confirmed to the Supreme Court, Kendi took an opportunity to, to destroy her also. Amy Coney Barrett is an originalist, which means she interprets the Constitution as written rather than as a living document. This more conservative approach angered a lot of progressives who opposed her nomination. But Kendi took it a step further. Barrett and her husband have seven children, two of whom were adopted from Haiti. If you hadn't heard, Haiti isn't the best place to live. Most of the country lives in abject poverty. They have a lot of earthquakes there. Their medical care isn't great. No matter what you think of America, it's a completely objective step up from the living conditions in Haiti. Adopting children is an incredibly selfless act for parents to do. Children do the best when they're in a stable environment with parents and siblings who love them. It seems from the outside that the Barrett family would be a lovely family to undertake children and bring them in. But Ibram Kendi didn't think so. He only cared about their skin color. Quoting a sense-deleted tweet, Kendi called Barrett and her family, quote, white colonizers, and her two adopted children, quote, props. He thought that the Barrett family only adopted black children in order to prove, falsely, according to him, that they were not racist. 
The fact that someone could say such a thing is flabbergasting to me. But in the end, he got away with it. In July of 2020, he was promoted by his employer, Boston University, to be the director for their Center for Anti-Racist Research. So what does all this mean exactly? Since 2015, when Donald Trump first declared his intention to run for president, his supporters, and later conservatives and or anyone who opposed them, were labeled open season for people to be called things like bigots and fascists. The pure and unadulterated irony of this is that the same people like D'Angelo and Kendi that think of these folks as bigots and fascists are, themselves, exhibiting bigot, bigoted and fascist tendencies. Take the recent California, California gubernatorial race, for example. The current governor, Gavin Newsom, is facing a recall. A recall is what happens when voters, if enough signatures are gained, can temporarily remove a politician from office in order to host an open election to potentially elect a replacement. Two of the more notable candidates that have declared for Gavin Newsom's opposition are Caitlyn Jenner and Larry Elder. Caitlyn Jenner is a transgender woman, and Larry Elder is a black man. Typically, these demographics are the darlings of the woke, people who need to be elevated and heard. But the only problem with the California gubernatorial race is that they happen to be running as Republicans. Caitlyn Jenner was once the darling of the left. Black men like Larry Elder are constantly made talking points of by liberals in order for them to be, quote, uplifted. But they don't agree with the tendencies of the woke. So, therefore, they must be destroyed. The LA Times ran a piece entitled, quote, Larry Elder is the black face of white supremacy. You've been warned. End quote. The Sacramento Bee ran a f- similarly vile piece about Caitlyn Jenner entitled, quote, Caitlyn Jenner wasted being a trans icon to run for governor, end quote. Similar hit pieces followed. Hardly any of them contained a shred of relevant material about either or two's ability to effectively run a state government. They were too focused on dismantling their identities by tribaling ripping their gender identity and skin color to shreds. Mercy for we, but not for thee. Stephen A. Smith, the race-baiting host that is currently the face of ESPN, was slammed for a condescending remark about current MLB superstar Shohei Otani. Quote, I'm black, I would know, was his response to the criticism. Democrat politicians all over the country are following in Mayor Bill de Blasio's lead by demanding vaccine passports while saying that anyone who wants voter identification at ballot boxes is akin to a Jim Crow-era racist. That's the current president of the United States talking. The amount of examples that could be named are seemingly endless in the era of madness in which we live. Maybe Robin D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi told these folks to, quote, diversity and include their list of people to unleash bigotry and racism on. This reversal of prominent liberal stances is stunning, to say the least. The fact that these people are able to get away with blatant and horrible public forms of discrimination and hatred is astounding. Until you realize why they're able to do so. Power is a funny thing. The great thing about power, particularly in a space as public as most of these offenders inhabit, is that it exposes people for who they really are, if you're willing to look at it honestly. Now that the people who push critical theory and societal destruction are in power, they simply are reverse engineering it onto the masses. They simply don't think that it applies to them. The, quote, power hierarchy that they claimed was oppressing everyone else hilariously disappeared as they began to fill it. They're off the mark. Now, all that's left for them to do, as evidenced by the above actions, is to use those same tendencies to destroy everything that could oppose them. In an authoritarian push that they so often accuse their conservative counterparts of, 
liberal authorities are washing wave, a wave of unchecked power over American society. No longer are they the, quote, victims. Now the shoe is on the other foot. Now they're the victimizers. And they want all of us to know about it. Power is a hell of a drug. It's funny how quick that victimhood chic wears off once you obtain it. Once it's rubbed off by your newfound aptitude for asserting your dominance, you can fully shed your skin and embrace who you really want to be. The person that controls something. It's true that people love an underdog, but it's even more true that people like a winner. Someone who rises above the rest and gets triumphed by society. But remember, a part of the true cost of greatness is that once you become great, you have to crush other people in order to achieve and maintain that greatness. And the new people that our new bigots have crushed are the people who are the new snowflakes. Part 2. Conservatives are the new snowflakes. The moment I realized the second half of our political bait-and-switch came on July 23rd of this year. Ten days before that date, conservative author, lawyer, commentator, and radio host Mark Levin released his newest book entitled American Marxism. Levin has been involved in politics since the 1980s, joining the Reagan administration as a part of his staff. He was a part of the new conservative movement that came from the Reagan era and was, is, close friends with Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity. His critiques of the modern left are especially blistering in nature. Those critiques reached a crescendo in American Marxism, which was claimed by many, including his friend Hannity, to be his magnum opus, or his best work. On July 23rd, the aforementioned Hannity had Levin onto his show to talk about the unprecedented success of American Marxism. The book has sold, has, had sold an astounding 400,000 copies in the first week alone, and was ripping the Amazon charts to shreds. Even more impressive, those numbers did not include audiobooks, ebooks, or soft cover sales. It outsold the combination of the next 15 books in the list collectively. It would later sell 700,000 copies within three weeks. It currently stands at sixth place in the Amazon charts at the time of this writing, heralding 10,494 reviews with an average rating of 4.9 out of 5 stars. The book, regardless of what you think of its contents, is nothing short of an absolute monster. And Mark Levin, no matter what you think of his beliefs or stances, is a very intelligent man. Unlike most of the detractors of the book, I actually read the damn thing. It makes some very solid points. It has literally hundreds of sources cited, including one chapter with over 120 citations confined in around 60 pages. It's about as solid of an argument as you can make. But the argument itself is the question that needs to be asked. Is it valid? The central thesis of Levin's book is that Marxism has creeped, crept into the principles of the Democratic left, particularly among progressives in the Biden administration, and is undoing the American system. Going back to things such as the Frankfurt School and Herbert Marcuse, Levin takes on everything from climate change to racial equity, all linking it back to the foundational Marxist principles. It's hard to argue against. Levin is a smart guy. I wouldn't want to pick that fight personally. But that's in a book. Reality is a much different thing. On Hannity's show that night, it was just after the six-month anniversary of the Biden administration getting inaugurated into the United States federal government. Hannity asked Levin to articulate how his new book tied into the timely event and what it meant to him in terms of that specific moment in America. Levin's response was very telling. It wasn't like the book. It seemed, shockingly, like something else. 
unhinged. Levin lit into everything that opposed the conservative movement. He was literally shaking with anger throughout his entire diatribe. He yelled at the camera and wagged his finger at the camera that was in his home office, disparagingly shitting all over the people that were, quote, doing this to the country. He compared the backlash against the woke movement, namely rightly discussing things like critical race theory, to its own, quote, movement. Levin had been a prominent member in the rise of the Tea Party. He had seen this before. He signed off shortly after. There's a picture in the aftermath of the 2016 election that went viral. It was a picture of a person, he, she, they, whatever it is, that was in bright green. That person was screaming in absolute anguish after they had realized that Donald Trump was president. That picture soon became a poster for, lib- for conservative pundits and voters the new- of the mental weakness of the modern liberal culture. These people were, quote, snowflakes, they were told. They couldn't handle a presidential election where their preferred candidate did not win. They were right in their assertions. That person and those people are indeed mentally weak. That picture will live in infamy forever because of it. But the same could be said about the picture that is residing above this section. That picture, the one with Mark Levin absolutely losing his shit at the camera because of a political agenda he didn't like, should be immediately used and weaponized by liberals across America as an embodiment of new wave conservative fragility. I read American Marxism after watching that interview. It was still a good book that made a solid argument. But I would think that it would have been a lot more powerful if I didn't see that five-minute trigger nuke that Mark Levin dropped on the world. While logic helps justify emotions, emotions are still king. They reign supreme over logic in all human beings. They always have, and they always will. And unfortunately for Mark Levin and the conservatives that listen to and support him, I think it will come back to bite them. More than 700,000 copies of Levin's book have been sold. That's an incredibly impressive amount in that short of a time. But if the guy guy who wrote the book, the guy who is about as well-educated and versed in conservative creed as Levin, can become that outraged at the instance of a question, who is to say that people with lesser intellectual capacity than him can as well? Hannity's show is one of the most watched cable news shows in the country, even though the industry itself, and Fox News, even though they won't say that part, has taken a collective shit all over itself. How many people do you think watched that interview? My bet would be a lot. In the book, Levin called just about everyone under the sun that opposed him politically a Marxist. He tried to explain this by saying that he was not calling everyone who opposed him politically a Marxist, but they were acting out Marxist tendencies. Funny how that sounds. In the last five years, both grassroots and prominent leftists have called people who oppose them politically racists. When pressed on the issue, which is obviously ridiculous, they usually say something like, quote, well, we're not saying that everyone is racist. We're simply saying that they're acting racist. Incredibly, the script is now flipped. Conservatives are blindly castigating everyone who they don't like as a Marxist, just like liberals blindly castigated everyone who opposed them as a racist. And, of course, it doesn't stop there. Conservatives rightly make fun of and mock liberals in 2016 when they tried to protest the results of the election. They said that Donald Trump was, quote, not their president. This was, obviously, absurd. Donald Trump won and Hillary Clinton lost. They claimed that there was interference from social media companies that swung the tide towards Trump. They were right about the interference. Foreign agents did interfere in our elections. But they were wrong in their assertion that they just favored Trump. 
As broken down by author Stephen Levy in his book on Facebook, the data showed that the posts that degraded either candidate were split down the middle. They also left out the fact that, while being exposed to material that may or may not have been true, people are still independent agents. The fact that these folks pretended like members of their own kind were somehow brainwashed and incapable of thinking for themselves was incredibly condescending. How ironic it was that not four years later, conservatives were doing the exact same thing. They claimed that Joe Biden had been wrongfully elected. They claimed that the election was, quote, rigged. They said that there was widespread voter fraud and voter irregularity, and that Joe Biden didn't actually win. But they, like their liberal adversaries, only got it half right. It's true that there was voter fraud and irregularity. There is in every election and will be in every election until the end of time. But they were dead wrong in the severity of that voter fraud and irregularity. There has been and doubtfully will be, or there hasn't been rather, and doubtfully will be, any evidence of that going into the future, particularly due to the fact that Trump lost by almost 7 million votes. But yet some claim that something was still done that was wrongful. Some even donned Viking hats and stormed a government building in, quote, protest. But that's a constructive, non-mentally weak way of dealing with the problem. Or because that's a constructively, non-mentally weak way of dealing with the problem. Wokesters make mountains out of molehills. In a much lampooned broadcast, CNN anchors once tried to paint Donald Trump as a horrendous pile of human fecal matter because he had two scoops of ice cream for dessert. Because he's, like, a Nazi or something. But when President Biden checks his watch during a ceremony where the 13 heroes who died for America get flown home, Ben Shapiro makes a YouTube video about it absolutely flipping his lid. Facts don't care about your feelings, right? Maybe Biden did it because he didn't want to be there. That could be true. But maybe he did it because the man wanted to check the fucking time. I've talked about woke capitalism before. I'm beginning to think, particularly after reading Vivek Rabaswamy's absolutely stellar book on it, that it's the greatest threat to our democracy we've seen in about 100 years. It's a popular talking point among many conservatives, who say that liberal bias companies are using woke capitalism to gain more profit and power by deceiving the American people into thinking that they care about something else other than both. They would be right in that assertion. It's an absolutely diabolical system that needs to be confronted. But some of their claims are losing merit. Why? Because they are supporters of woke capitalism, too. In my post on the subject, I labeled those who use wokeness to oppose the woke mob as the anti-woke mob. So, naturally, it's right to call this movement anti-woke capitalism. Perhaps the biggest proponents of anti-woke capitalism is a man named Mike Lindell, who is the founder and CEO of MyPillow. Lindell became a prominent vocal supporter and later advisor of Donald Trump during both his campaign and his presidency. At a speech at Liberty University, Lindell had this to say, quote, When I met with Donald Trump, it felt like a divine appointment, and when I walked out of the office, I decided that I was going to go all in, end quote. The problem is not Mike Lindell having opinion about politics. Even though I'm more of a fan of people mostly keeping low-key about it, it doesn't change the fact that Mike Lindell is a citizen of this country. Being a citizen of this country gives you inalienable rights. Mike Lindell has the right to freely express his opinion on whatever he wants to politically. The problem with Mike Lindell, and with woke anti-woke capitalism, is that he leveraged his company in order to impose a political agenda on the world of business. But Lindell, being an anti-woke capitalist, chose not to do this in the form of racial equity in transgender bathrooms. He chose to do it via defamation. A popular conspiracy theory about the voter fraud and irregularity claims from conservatives is that Dominion, a company that makes voting machines, 
rig the counting in favor of Joe Biden. This is ludicrous. But Mike Lindell didn't care. He used both his and MyPillow's platform to absolutely pillory Dominion in order to gain profit and power by galvanizing his conservative consumer base. But as a person who has great, quote, business acumen, according to Donald Trump, he should know that liberals buy bedsheets, pillows, and slippers too. These are pretty essential things. Well, except for maybe the slippers. Dominion was, obviously, furious at this. Both Lindell and MyPillow were facing hefty lawsuits because of it. Not only did Lindell potentially fuck himself, he potentially fucked his company, consumers, and employees, too. Let's go back to Trump. His two sons, Don Jr. and Eric, act as the de facto co-CEOs of the Trump Organization, their father's multi-billion dollar holding and real estate company. But that didn't stop them from acting as quasi-political operatives while working for the company bearing their father's name. Both sons, regardless of what you think of them, even though Don Jr. is a particularly heinous cretin in my opinion, acting as a blatantly partisan in favor of their father while running a major American corporation is a big no-no. They spoke at rallies. They actively campaigned. They spoke with foreign agents. There should be no difference between what they're doing and what the woke capitalists of the left are doing. But yet, conservatives defended them anyway. Think of the names I've mentioned. Mark Levin, Ben Shapiro, Mike Lindell, Donald, Donald Jr., and Eric Trump. These are not small potatoes. These are massive figures in our popular culture, particularly among the conservative movement. They all blatantly crossed the line with ridiculous behavior because they were triggered by something. Yet they're constantly defended. Their outrage is warranted among their own people. The rules that apply to liberals seemingly don't apply to conservatives. But there's a reason for this. There is something that I truly believe these people know, but that no one has ever said to their face. It would have seemed asinine up to recently. So I'll save everyone the trouble and tell them for them. Conservatives are soft. Much like their liberal counterparts earlier who are now imposing their dominance, conservatives in the country are now adopting a stance of outrage and victimhood. They now scream on podcasts and television shows. They complain about everything. Most of them have become absolutely insufferable and impossible to listen to. I'm pretty sure every fourth word out of Clay Travis's mouth is woke. It's like a girl begging to do anal with her boyfriend and then whining about it afterwards. They're letting liberals fuck them in the ass and then complaining to them afterwards about how sore they are. Of course anal hurts. It's supposed to. Not everyone can be like Dana White and Tucker Carlson, who are balanced in their approach and don't impose their beliefs on everyone via the I can talk louder than you approach. We need more of these people. We need more of those conservatives. Instead, tainted by popular culture and wokeism, we're now getting more Charlie Kirks and Lindsey Grahams. It's more popular to scream your victimhood and stroke yourself off to how much a liberal tax cut offend, or tax raise offends you. It's very much, much less so to simply shut up and take your medicine or lay out a well-thought argument instead of ejaculating a conspiracy theory out of your micropenis every time something pisses you off. Toxic victimhood is a fucking cancer. It's an absolutely horrendous disease that is 100% self-inflicted. I feel no sympathy for these people, and nor, and nor should you. I've given the left much hate over, over it for my time on my blog. I try to be as consistent as possible, and soft-ass conservatives will continue to catch my wrath until they clean their shit up. But they probably won't, for two reasons. One, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm not sure if more than seven people read this shit. Two, they're soft. And soft people don't like to change. Change is hard. Soft people don't like hard things. 2 plus 2 does not equal 4 in that scenario. You might be asking yourself why this matters. 
Why would I write a political post, a topic that I've avoided like the plague about writing about directly? I hope I don't write another one. It's been an exhausting process to say the least. But it's a question that deserves answering. So let's get so so let's get to why you should give a shit. Section 3. What does this mean for everyone else? In the film Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, the last quality film in the franchise before it effectively went off the fucking rails, there is a scene where the crew of the Black Pearl discovers how to get out of Davy Jones' locker and back into the physical world. The crew runs from side to side on the ship, forcing it to rock precariously back and forth, slowly inching it closer and closer to capsizing. But, as discovered by Captain Jack Sparrow, this is the way, Mandalorian voice, to return. The ship eventually flips over and completely inverts itself. The idea works, and the crew is eventually sent back to the physical realm. Up is down. In our non-pirate world, I increasingly feel the same reality. Up is down. It's hard not to feel that way. Looking at our political class from afar and at the surface level, this seems nothing else if not completely and utterly strange. The things that people that we looked up to stood for apparently don't stand for them anymore. The script is flipped. No one knows who to go to anymore for the simple fact they don't know where they stand. They're hardly recognizable anymore. Up is down. However, in doing research for this post, I remembered something that had caught my eye that it was in the same vein as this issue that happened later in 2020. On September 15th of that year, Candace Owens released her much-anticipated debut book, Blackout. The book had been salivated on by many conservatives who were eager to have Owens deal another devastating blow to the political left for their constant condescension and diminishing of minorities for political gain. Well, not all people on the left do this, obviously. It certainly has its place among pop prominent liberal politicians. It's a sickening process, and Owens has had enough. But there was something interesting about the book's release. It wasn't initially supposed to be released in September. It was supposed to be released in February. But Owens decided to wait. The question is, why? Well, if you remember, we had a pretty important day in November that eventually elected Joe Biden to become President of the United States over the incumbent Donald Trump. Owens and Trump are very close. She's one of his biggest supporters and one of Trump's favorite people. She, and a lot of other people, like her, by the way, knew that. So she pushed her book back until two months before the election in order to capitalize on that gigantic wave of momentum. Owens didn't frame it like this. She said she wanted to release it to galvanize people for vote, to vote for Trump in the election. But I think Candace Owens might have an, had an ulterior motive as well. The book was an absolute smash hit. It currently stands at 19,416 reviews on Amazon with an average of 4.9 stars. It sold a lot of copies. It launched her into the stratosphere, further into the stratosphere, and good for her. Owens might have done it to galvanize people for, to vote for Donald Trump over Joe Biden. But I'm willing to bet she also did it for a whole lot of money, prestige, and power as well. There are hardly any people in the modern political arena that carry as much clout as Candace Owens. She's incredibly ferocious and intelligent like the aforementioned Mark Levin. But, like the aforementioned Mark Levin, she was guilty of something that they both hate on their liberal opponents for. Virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is when someone, primarily on the political left at least recently, 
Shouts from the rooftops they are better than people because of some reason in order to make a statement that furthers an agenda. Whether Mark Levin and Candace Owens did this on purpose remains to be seen. I don't know either of them personally and can't ask them. But the fact that is undeniable that this occurred. I would much prefer people in positions such as theirs to be straight up about it rather than not to acknowledge the elephant in the room. While liberals usually don't try to hide it, conservatives do their best to. Let's go back to our friend Senator Pat Geary. In one of my favorite film scenes of all time, Michael Corleone tells a nefarious senator, quote, We're all a part of the same hypocrisy. The line is a brutal one. It reminds the senator that even though they might be on the opposite sides of the law in theory, they're no better than one another. Geary actively colluded with the Corleone family under threat later in the film. Like many things in that film, it sheds a light on some of the darker aspects of American culture. The reason why I've pushed my idea of our ruling class so much is because I firmly believe that it exists. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, even though when some, whenever someone alludes to something like this, they have just get strangely labeled as one. I don't believe in one political ideology being bad over the other. Like most things, institutions and movements are not bad at their core. They simply get corrupted and polluted by the people that operate within them. I don't believe the conservative or liberal ideology to be an existential threat, even though I and most people tend to agree with one versus the other, and I definitely do. The scary thing about this role reversal in society is that it doesn't only corrupt and pollute these movements. It also expands them. Think about it. In all the examples we've named, both sides of our political class are simultaneously claiming to die on the hill of their labeled preference, but acting like their enemies. Why is this? For clarity, I'll take you back to our friend Vivek Ramaswamy. When defining woke capitalism in his book, Ramaswamy made a point about capitalism that absolutely blew my mind. In my post on shareholder versus stakeholder theory, I detailed the Friedman Doctrine, the long-revered proposal by economist Milton Friedman that proposed that the sole purpose of a business was to make money for its shareholders. This has come under fire recently with things like woke capitalism. Proponents of woke capitalism claim to say that by sticking to the Friedman Doctrine that people are only enriching wealth for the people that own stake in the company, and this is a correct assertion. But that doesn't make it a wrong one. This is actually a reasonable pushback from the people who believe this claim. We're naturally empathetic people. We don't like to see people being greedy and selfish and step on people. But Ramaswamy knows something else. He believes these people are correct, too. But he also says that it's not that simple. According to Ramaswamy, the reason that the Friedman Doctrine must hold in place and not be subverted is very simple. If they don't, companies have the power to rule our country. This might sound like a, another, quote, conspiracy theory, but I'll prove you to why it's not. In our Constitution, our founders foresaw the path of an unchecked federal government. They correctly pointed out that there needed to be something in place in order to, to avoid a tyrannical set of future conflicts. In order to combat this, they devised our current system of checks and balances for the federal government to check one another, including things like the filibuster and presidential veto. Whatever you think of the federal government, particularly in the last year and a half, it survived most of America's existence without being at least completely authoritarian. Business does not have that luxury. The only check to business is the federal government, which is now more colluding now with big business and stymieing it when it goes too far. See the Biden administration and big tech working together to, quote, combat misinformation, for example. I think it would be wise to point out another example. A lot of people tend to blend conservatism and libertarianism together. This is a mistake, and it's important to know why. Conservatives believe that an originalist approach should, to the Constitution. 
Libertarians believe in an absolutist stance on individual agency, and they are not the same thing. A lot of conservatives, to, to avoid the wrath of, quote, being a conservative, are declaring themselves as libertarians. A lot of liberals who aren't agreeing with the craziness of the modern left are doing something similar, labeling themselves as, quote, socially liberal, but fiscally conservative, whatever the fuck that means. Maybe Ashton Kutcher can tell you. He's one of them. But libertarianism is something else. Libertarianism is dangerous. Libertarianism is a cancer. It throws all the rules out the window into an orgasmic fuck-for-all with no values other than maximizing individual agency being prominent. I'm all for maximizing the individual power within oneself. This blog, hopefully, is a living testament to that. And podcast, I should say. Because you guys are not reading the blog or listening to the podcast right now. <laughs> but we must have rules. There must be guide rails. Or we'll fling off the side of the bridge and wreck ourselves and a whole lot of other shit. In our modern-day political system, it seems this is taking hold on both sides. The rules that both sides of the political aisle had no longer exist. Rather, they've converged. They don't care about holding together for themselves. No. They only care about preserving the power of the whole pie rather than dying on the hill of their own ideas that they truly believe. In the last reference I'll have to Ramaswamy, quote, They say they're pursuing something else other than profit and power, only to grab more of each. End quote. At a certain point, this devolves from simple personal agency, whether in corporate, personal, or political format, into greed and selfishness. Self-interest will begin to reign above all things, which is never good in a society like ours that is driven by a shared set of values. Our ruling class has devolved from simply pursuing personal power into a machine driven by greed and selfishness, which cannot be a viable solution to serving a country of 340 million people. Because, at the end of the day... People will start to get sick of it. They'll get sick of the condescension, the lies, the nonsense, and they'll start to fight back. But it might not be in the way that you expect. Author and journalist Douglas Murray has an interesting point on that that I think is worth explaining. For the last few years, Murray has kept a close eye on the insidious monster that has become identity politics around the globe, but particularly in America and Great Britain, where he resides. One of his many astute points is that people within so-called, quote, marginalized groups do not understand where their stopping point is. In Murray's terms, they don't know, quote, when they've got to equal and have surpassed into better, end quote. This is a very frightening and very true claim to make. This idea of, quote, surpassing equal is very dangerous. It leads to a tribalism that was akin to a pre-civil rights movement in America based on things of people that belong to certain protected classes, which is all of us. Not only has this caused us to increasingly polarize against one another in rap and hostility, it also brings out our worst instincts. For example, I work for a tech company. Tech companies have been in the news a lot recently, if you haven't heard. They are the hotbeds for many identity politics movements such as racial equity and gender diversity. As a straight white dude, I have none of these things to fall back on. I'm not the enemy and I'm not a bad person when it's constantly framed that you have some part in oppressing other people, it's hard not to feel shitty sometimes. But feeling shitty gets old after a while. Eventually, when not properly dealt with, despair and sadness can lead to worse emotions. Let's say I have a black coworker who gets put in an organization call because he closed a massive sale, and good for him for doing so. But let's say me and a couple other people who look like me also closed massive sales. Certain questions come to your mind. Wait, why am I being left out? Why they pick him? Is it because he's black? Because she's a girl? Because that person's gay? 
You don't have to be a racist or a sexist or a homophobe to think these thoughts, particularly when you're constantly playing defense. They're not true if your organization is truly based on merit and not on other things. But, again, the lines can sometimes blur together, as they have with our ruling political class. You don't know who to trust. You don't know if they're really rooting for you and hoping that you do well. And that's a very scary thing indeed. The bottom line in all of this, and why it matters for us as citizens of this collective nation, is that it unveils the real purpose of people who supposedly, quote, stand for something. But they're not. Their stances are no longer stances. They don't have stances anymore. What they're standing on is you. The only thing that separates them from the rest of us is supposedly a platform to represent you. But what happens when the platform is eroded and no more? What happens is that they stop representing you. Instead, they only take action to pursue control and power. Nothing more, nothing less. The battle is not left and right, liberal and conservative. The battle is up and down. I'm not a full-grown populist who is attempting to repeat the French Revolution. Not at all. But it would be ignorant to say that there isn't a divide that no one in our upper echelon is attempting to bridge. Stances are built on values. Values comprise individuals. Individuals comprise society. But if there are no stances, if there is not selective intolerance, then do we have any of these things? If you don't know where people stand, you can never tell what they truly believe. When people do this in a consistent fashion, all trust is lost. In the political arena, when these stances shape our democracy, where these stances shape our democracy and the people that comprise it, this can cascade into a slippery slope into tyranny. When we can no longer tell the difference between sides of an issue, we lose meaning of the issue itself. Our political class's stance switching to gain power and profit at the expense of our meaningful participation in this arena has blinded us to their true motives and our true obstacles. If we are to get back to the meaningful participation in our republic, we must hold them accountable. The problem isn't whether you're a liberal or whether you're a conservative. The problem is when you lie about whether you're a liberal or conservative. It's not a give and take. You can't die on a hill while saying that you need to abandon it when it's convenient for you. That's the definition of an untruth, of misinformation, of lies. It's hard to stick to your guns on occasion, but it's much better than the alternative. Particularly when that alternative is Bill de Blasio taking a news conference in a Brooklyn Nets jersey. Alrighty, everyone. That is my post. That was a long one, so I'm sorry about that if you don't like long things. But I think it was, I thought it was good. I thought it was a good exercise for me to flush that out. I hope you guys at least got you thinking. You don't have to agree with me, but at least got you thinking about some things that, you know, I think are important. So, again, happy Labor Day weekend, guys. Spend it with people you care about. I hope you guys have a great weekend. Own the day. Open your mind. Have a good one. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?